0: 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we're going to pick up today. If you have a Bible, great, or one in our app. Uh, There's also Bibles on the chairs or underneath the chairs in front of you. Um, So we're picking up the story. We're in this series called Kings and Prophets. We're talking about how God is leading his people roughly 3,500, 4,000 years ago. How God is leading his people in the world. And we're relating that to how God leads us today. How in Christ... That we are to live today, what God is calling us towards. And so I'm going to dive right in. Here's kind of a main idea today, representing Jesus to others. The world believes about Jesus, what it sees in Christians, right? If we are loving, then Jesus must be loving. If we are not, Jesus must not be loving. But we know that we represent Christ to the world, that as Christians, that we have the responsibility of being Christ in our community, and that how people see us is how they see God. It's Mother's Day today, and, and we get this about our parents, too. When we're being raised by our parents, if our parents are loving and grace-filled and, and all that, we think, well, okay, that's what God must be like. And then, but if our parents are angry and judgmental, we get that same thing. When Christians are angry and judgmental in the world, people see that as who Jesus is. And so we recognize that we have a responsibility to be like Jesus in the world that others might see Christ through us. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So as we've been following this kind of this uh, rise of David to the throne, and then ascends finally to the throne, and and he has these different battles. He goes out, they go to war, they do their thing, and then also David has restored worship to Jerusalem. Uh, Last week it says that he led the people with justice and equity and how he pursued equity among the kingdom. And then today they go back out to war, but this time what's different is rather than David going out with them, David sends the armies out to battle without him. And so there comes this time and this place where everything works without you if you're doing a good job, right? We've got a great team here, great leaders here, lots of things happen apart from me. In fact, lots of things go way better that I'm not a part of it. Paychecks still do better with my name on the bottom, just for the record. But no, but it's good to have leadership go out and do what they're supposed to do. And so the armies, they go out to battle. David stays at home. But this is new. David's always been the guy on the front lines. And that can't happen forever. And so they go off to battle. He remains in Jerusalem. Verse 2 It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from a roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so there's been this this common theme throughout David's life, that David's been a very godly man, and we've had one passage a few weeks ago where David kind of, he gets angry, there's a guy who rejects him, he's been caring for the guy's uh, servants and his flocks and all these different things, and he asked him for a favor, and the man rejects Jesus, uh, rejects Jesus. the man rejects David, and David gets angry with him and wants to go in and destroy the whole village, right? And as this happens, as he is on his way, he's committed to going in and destroying everybody, he's on his way to do this, it would have been wrong to do it, but he is heading in ready to go. And then he has this opportunity before it's too late, before he's gone and done everything wrong... He has this opportunity. We just kind of talked about like an off-ramp on a freeway. He has this opportunity to turn and not do it. And he takes that opportunity, and the story works out well. Uh, But we continue to remind ourselves that David's not the hero of our story. Jesus is, right? That David has flaws just like we do, even though to this point David has been a godly leader. In fact, in the absence of or in the before him was Saul not a godly leader. And David, on his rise to the throne, on his way when God had promised him to be king, we saw that he had many opportunities in order to take the throne early or to kill Saul, whatever. And he always does the right thing. And even in the story where Nabal offends him and he goes in to kill him, he kind of takes that off-ramp before it's too late. And so when we look at this, David has this opportunity. He's up on the palace. Uh, up on the top of the palace, on the rooftop of the palace, and he looks out over Jerusalem, and somehow he sees this woman, she's bathing, she's beautiful, and there's this moment where, okay, has he done anything wrong yet? I don't know what's gone through his mind yet, but let's just say no for the moment, all right? There's this opportunity, you've got this thing, you're like, okay, if I keep going down this road, problems. But there's always this opportunity, God always gives us this opportunity to kind of turn off and, and not do the wrong thing. Now, if David had done that, This would be a really short chapter, so uh, we'll keep going. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from the uncleanness, and then she returned to her house. So David says, okay, I see this woman. Who is is she? Well, isn't that the wife of Uriah, one of your soldiers who's out at war? That was the moment, right? That was the time where you're like, okay, so it's someone else's wife, right? Time to turn around. And, and not do this, but instead, knowing Uriah's out of town, he sends for her, she comes to him, and they sleep together. So here's the moment. Now we're in sin. Now we've gone to this place where we shouldn't be, right? Today, the rest of this passage is about how this one sin changes David. To this point, David has been a man of character at times where he's had opportunity to do the wrong things, Uh, to do things that even might have seemed like they were right, he always sought God out. When Saul was chasing him around trying to murder him, and it seems like God just kind of delivered him up into David's hands and his armor bearers with David and says, listen, let me just pin him to the ground with his spear. I won't miss, man. First shot, I got this. And David says, no. Who am I to take out the man that that God anointed to be king? Like, I'm going to wait my turn. So He's been a man of godly character all along, and we keep reminding ourselves, listen, David's not the hero of the story. Jesus is. And it's days like today that we remember why, why that is so important, as now David is not that guy. David has done something wrong. He's sinned against God. He's he sinned against, really, his kingdom, against Israel, who's given him all this power and authority. He's sinned against Uriah, for sure, a soldier out fighting a battle for him while he's home sleeping with his wife. All this stuff has gone on, and it's this that changes David. It's this unchecked, unrepented sin that is going to change the very character of David today. Verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now you're busted, right? Now something, right? Like now, you're going to have to figure this out, because your husband's out at war, and you weren't pregnant when he left. Now, right? Right? Okay. Verse six. So David sent word to Joab. He said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now what could have happened here, right? There's a, lot of moment, there's a lot of moments in our lives. There's several moments where we have this opportunity where we want to do the wrong thing, or we consider doing the wrong thing, or even we do the wrong thing, right? And there's those off-ramps where we, we know we could have just taken that off-ramp and not done this, But even once this is, once David has sinned, once David and Bathsheba have been together, find out she's pregnant, there's opportunity here. So we don't know why yet, why David is sending for, to Joab, for Uriah. But it could have been different. It could have been this. They could have got Uriah home. They could have confessed what they did. They could have done this differently. But again, David's unchecked sin is going to cause David to be different than he's always been before his very nature and character is changing verse 7 when Uriah came to him David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going then David said to Uriah go down to your house and wash your feet and Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his own house So here is cover-up attempt number one by David. David calls this guy, hey, let him come in off the battlefield, and then he's going to give me an update on the battle, and I'm going to tell him, hey, go to your house. And he's thinking this, listen, he's going to go to his house, everything's going to be great, he'll be with his wife, and that's our cover-up, right? Then, now she's pregnant, at yours, and we can lie about this and bury it forever, right? So cover-up attempt number one doesn't work. He doesn't go home. He finds in himself, like, hey, listen, everybody I know is out at battle. Who am I to go home? And so he sleeps with the servants of the king. So we put this on, uh, we put this up. Impact of sin in our lives. David, once a godly king, failed greatly. Sin changes David, and his decisions deeply affect the rest of his life. One unchecked sin always leads to more sin. So if it wasn't the lust up on the rooftop, if it wasn't desiring something that wasn't his... Then he lets that go, and so then he is with her. He has an affair with her, her affair. It's not like he doesn't have a wife. It's not like he doesn't have a lot going on at the palace, right? God has blessed him. Israel has blessed him with everything. The people fighting these battles have blessed him with everything he needs. But it's not enough. He goes and he does this. He has this affair, and instead of recognizing, okay, there's a pregnancy. Now, like, we're in too deep. Like, we've got to find a way to walk through this and make this right. Instead of that, he sins for Uriah. And he tries to kind of cover it up and follow this up. One sin, unchecked, always leads to more sin in our lives. My dad used to tell me that one lie always leads to another lie. As I would tell him, no it doesn't, which was another lie. So it was, it was true, right? Well, one sin, unchecked, always leads to more sin. We'll always keep going that way until repentance, right? Until we want to turn from that and walk back through it. Verse 10, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come home from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booze. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So to make things worse, if they can get any worse, right? Uriah's a stand-up guy. Like he's just a good dude. He comes home and feels like, hey man, everybody I'm supposed to be with is sleeping out in the open field, or he says, even the ark of God's in a tent. Like, why would I go home? What would make me, why would I do that? I'm not, no, I won't do this, and David would be the wrong thing to do, as David's trying to set him up, right? Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So cover up attempt number two, let's get him drunk, and then send him home, right? Hey, instead of going back today, because, you know, he's only here to give him an update on the war, instead of going back today, why don't you hang out with me today? Like, come eat with me. Come, keep drinking, keep drinking. No, no, drink more, tipping it up, right? And, And as he does this, he's thinking, okay, now, now he'll go home, right? He still does the right thing. He still stays there he still doesn't go home. So David and Uriah, and we'll put this up, today David is flawed and Uriah does right, reminding us why David is never the hero of the story. David, like us, is flawed. Jesus is the only perfect leader, right? It's to remind us that even good people are going to fall short. I will fail. I will fall short of what we need to be. You will. David will. David has, right? But it's to remind us in that that we still have a sinless Savior, right? That Jesus is still flawless. That when everybody lets us down, there's still Jesus to turn to, right? When the church falls short of who we are to be, Jesus hasn't fallen short, right? When we as leaders, we as Christians, when we fail, Jesus is still Jesus. That we still have a sinless Savior, that we still have a perfect God to turn to, when everything else crumbles and falls down around us, we know we can turn to Jesus. Because Jesus' people fall short, not Jesus himself, right? We're going to fall short. That doesn't give us the excuse of, oh, we're, we're okay, we're just going to fail. We can always just turn to Jesus. But remember, we're still to represent Jesus to the world. What we do matters. But as we focus on this, we have to remember, listen, normally David does the right thing. But today, it's a guy named Uriah, not David. David's doing all the wrong things. We never fix our eyes on a leader, on a human. We keep our eyes lifted up to Jesus. And in that way, we get to represent Jesus to the world. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So cover up attempt number three, let's just get him killed in war. You're going to send him to the front of the battle, and Joab, when the, when the thick of the battle is going, you're going to withdraw, and you're just going to leave him there, and you're going to let the enemy kill him. Verse 16, and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So Uriah literally dies for having a beautiful wife, Right? He goes to war, he's being a faithful soldier, he's out there on behalf of the king, he's got a beautiful wife at home, and while he's gone, unbeknownst to him, David, the king, who got plenty, is at home kind of destroying his life, and at this point, even ending his life. Rather than turn and walk through the junk he's created, he just sends Uriah out and lets Uriah be killed, in fact, causes Uriah to be killed. Verse 18, Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, And when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall that he died at Thebes Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now I don't know if he thinks he's gonna send word back and David's gonna be upset, or if this is a little bit of blackmail from Joab, but he's like, hey, so you make sure you let him know, hey, Uriah's dead, wink wink. Like, hey, don't forget what you told you're the one that told me to do this. Right? So when you don't get mad that we lost this battle over here, you told me to do this, right? You let you remind you set Uriah out, and you told us to pull back. So of course we lost, and Uriah's dead. So the messenger, verse 22, went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 25, And David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. David does kind of the, well, you know, we all have a bad day sometimes, right? Like when, he, when you go back and tell Joab, don't worry about all those people that died, you know, we all drop the ball once in a while, right? That's David's, hey, listen, you got done what I needed you to get done. Uriah's dead. Nobody else knows. Start a little secret. It's all good, right? Verse 26. Then the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So they have Uriah killed, or David has Uriah killed. And then after a time of mourning, he calls for Bathsheba. calls her over to be his wife. Now, a question that often comes up is, well, how come... People in the Old Testament often uh, have, or live polygamous. Have so many? Why do you guys have so many wives? Right? Is that was that okay in the Old Testament? Tends to be the question. When the New Testament is super clear about having only one wife, why in the Old Testament? And this isn't how God created it to be, right? We see God in creation. We see God create Adam. And he is alone. He's in need of a wife. God creates the woman for him. God officiates over the first wedding, right? The first marriage is put together by God. And Adam and Eve, in fact, are are given not only a blessing and a job and a role and a family, but God tells Adam this. He says, for this reason, you or a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Like that will be your one family, right? This is the way God has made it. He never changes that. But what happens is culture changes that. They live in a world, they live in an agrarian world. In other words, most people either raise crops or raise animals for a living. That's the vast majority of what everybody does. And when you do this, if you're a farmer or anything else, it takes like a lot of help, a lot of work. And so the more kids you have, the better, right? And and just same thing, you go back in our history when more farming was done, much larger families often. Right? And there was just strength in having that many kids. And so a guy could get a woman pregnant, and then you've got to wait, right? What you moms do takes time, right? Takes time to form a little human, right? But a guy can go impregnate another woman right away. And so culture began to accept this. So culturally, they slipped into a place where polygamy was accepted. Never did God say it was okay, right? Modern-day equivalent is there's a lot of things we talked about some of this last week. Culture shifts to a place where Christianity widely accepts a lot of the terrible speech online and the political biases, right? In fact, the political involvement in general, right? That we have lowered our trust to people, not to God, seems to be normal, right? And the way we talk to one another online, not in good ways is widely accepted even in the church, right? So we shift into places where Scripture clearly says you shouldn't talk like that, you shouldn't act like that, and yet what you'll find is it's widely accepted in the church. Culture accepts things doesn't mean God allows them. Say that again. It's because culture accepts things doesn't mean God allows them. And what we see is a culture that God doesn't want, but it is where they live. In fact, we find God even blesses them among this. I think what happens here is God just sees they're so trapped in the culture they live in, sometimes they just don't see their way out of it. And I think that's true of all of us. We live under the assumptions and biases of the culture we live in, whether that be Southern California, which is very different than Washington or New England or somewhere else, or it's an American concept, a paradigm that we're in because of who we are. It can be ethnic, it can be cultural. It can be socioeconomic. It can be anything, but a lot of times we're just limited by the culture we live in and we don't see the lenses by which we look at life. It's hard to lay those down. It's a discipline to try and lay those things down and look at something. That's why culture just reads right through Scripture or Christian culture today reads right through Scripture and doesn't see some of the things that are so antithetical to what God has called us to. So David is living in a season like that where it's widely accepted to have many wives. And so he's got a ton of wives, and then takes another one. And God has been blessing him all along, but then this chapter kind of concludes with, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This isn't the first thing he's done wrong as far as Scripture goes, and it's not definitely the last thing he'll do, but right now what he's doing is going beyond that to do things he knows is wrong right? He's moved from what is culturally acceptable and what he might be unaware of to a place where what he knows he's doing is wrong. And he's doing that and then the next thing and the next thing to try and cover it up. And so he's way out of bounds by this time. 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 1, says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, we're in this series, Kings and Prophets, right? God has been leading his people back then 3,500-ish years ago, With kings and prophets, Saul was a failed king, but David, to this point, has been a very good king. There had been some failed priests, but the prophets have been a staple, right? Samuel, now Nathan, and God sends Nathan straight to David. Here's what happens. Verse one. Let's start back there. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, "There was two. There were two men in a certain city. One rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought." And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. So the prophet Nathan tells this heart-wrenching story. So there's this guy who has a puppy, a little female puppy, and he loves the puppy. And the puppy sleeps with him and eats his food. It's like a daughter to him. He loves this puppy. And then there's the bad rich guy, right, who's got plenty. And when a visitor comes to instead of taking one lamb from among his plenty, Right? One cow, one hamburger, one steak, one lamb, whatever it is. And instead of taking what he had, he took from the poor man. And he took his, he took all he had. And he served that instead of taking from what he had. And David is livid. David is angry, jumps. So you just imagine David like that dude needs to die now. Like, show me the guy. I'll kill him myself, right? Like, this dude needs to go. Here's what David doesn't get you're it. It's so easy to see everybody else's sin. Remember that bias we live in? Remember that paradigm we're trapped in, that lens by which we see life? That lens is very clear when you're sinning. Not so much when I'm doing it, right? Super clear when I want to point it out to you. It's a little murky when we get down to my life. That's where David is in this moment. That man, not me, because I'm all right, but that man deserves to die. Sin corrupts good character. We'll put this up. David has been a godly man, but sin caused him to act outside of his character. Sin, even one sin corrupts and erodes our character. This isn't David, right? This is different than the David we've been watching and following and watch him grown up from like the time he was 13 on up. He's actually walked around things that seemed like they were teed up for him to do because God was leading him. But now in this moment, one sin leads to another sin, leads to another sin, leads to another sin, and now David has become almost unrecognizable, and all that happened was sin, was unchecked, unrepented of sin. So much so, God sends Nathan to tell him this story, and now David is angry. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. I would have doubled it if this wasn't enough, God says. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Nathan outs David completely, right? He just, listen, you're the one. You know how angry you are? That's how God's feeling right now, right? You're the rich man. I gave you everything. You've got plenty. You've got plenty of wives and money and wealth and power and status and everything. You've been given everything. God says, I gave you everything. It wasn't enough. I'd have given you twice as much. But instead, you went to the guy who's out there fighting for you right now. and You took his one wife. You took her. And God says things like, why have you despised my word? Why would you do this? And God takes it on him. And and we have to recognize, because God gave everything to David, part of David's sin is telling God, it's not enough, I'm going to go take that. Right? It's you haven't given me enough, God. You haven't haven't been faithful to me, God. And all my wealth, and power, and position, and status, and everything. So I'm going to go take from Uriah. So verse 10, it says, Now therefore the sword, so God says, now here's your penalty, right? Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So here's the penalty for your sin, David. There's going to be death that follows you around. There's going to be shame that follows your house. The things you did in private, I'm going to do them to you publicly. You will be shamed for what you did, but there's also death and and just struggle is going to be a part of this. And so you look at this, and, and you're probably, I think we're prone to one of two things. We see this and we see how bad it is. We see how David takes from Uriah someone who's faithful to him, who's fighting for him in that moment, and how he does harm to him. And maybe part of us is just like, you know what? David has all that and more coming, right? But on the other side of this, you're like, okay, so I see what he did, but God's like, man, death is coming. I'm going to out you publicly. I mean, like, you're going to be shamed out in the front of the middle of everybody. And sometimes we wonder, like, why so severe a punishment? What we're missing here is that David is God's representative to the people, right? David isn't just some other guy. He's not just Uriah. David has been made king. He's been given the responsibility of representing God to the people. It's like Nathan the prophet who goes and speaks to David, right? There's a responsibility when you represent God to others, right? There's a responsibility in being a pastor, Right, that you have to know when you when you say yes to this job, like you're held to a different level of accountability. Right, our culture is battling through that right now with police and and different things. Like, okay, when we give somebody a badge and a gun, what do we expect? Right, we all know that with authority and with leadership comes responsibility. That's where David dropped the ball, and that's why God is being so severe with David. Is he's in a position of leadership? It's supposed to reflect God to the people. And David has not done that. See, like us, the church, we are to reflect Jesus to the world around us. We're held to that accountability. We're held accountable to that level of reflecting Jesus outward. And let's just admit it, Jesus could choose some better people, right? Like, we're going to drop the ball. But he chooses us. And so we become, and it's not like you get to opt in or opt out like an email thread, right? It it is, you're going to do this. Like, this is what it means to be in Christ. Like, to receive grace, redemption, to be a part of this family. God says, here's the deal. Now, you reflect me to the world, right? You don't get to choose. It's just true. It's like being a parent. You reflect God to your kids, right? How you are with them will teach them about God you overlook wrongdoing and sin and let them do whatever, then God is just this God who doesn't care about what's right or wrong. Are you angry and judgmental and unforgiving? Then God is just that angry God and you're an ant and he's got a magnifying glass, right? It, to, how, you represent, how you live towards your children, will teach them subtly and subconsciously about God because they equate you with that. And the world around us equates us with Jesus. And that's where David falls down so poorly. He's the king. He's held to a higher accountability. So for us, representatives of King Jesus, Christians are more responsible for our actions than others because we represent Christ to the world. We're the only Jesus many will ever see. To the atheist or Buddhist next door, we might be the only Jesus he ever gets to see, right? To the world around us that thinks that Christianity is about Christmas and Easter, we might be the only Jesus that they get to see, We reflect Christ to the world, and when we do a poor job of that, it reflects poorly on Jesus. And again, he could choose better people than me, for sure. But this is the job that we're called to. We represent Christ to the world. Verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I love this. When I look at this verse, I'm reminded not only of all the people David sinned against, like Gariah, for example, or Bathsheba, or Israel, or Judah, or... Any of that, like he had so many things he did wrong, but ultimately what he was doing was sinning against God. Right? God is the one that made him king. God is the one who gave him the wives. God is the one who gave him everything. When he sins against that, he's telling God, You haven't done enough for me. When I drive down the street and I think your house is better than my house, what I'm saying is, God, the house you gave me isn't enough. And that's what he says. David figures this out in this moment and says, God, I've sinned against you. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. I love that as soon as David says, I messed it up. The first thing Nathan says is you're forgiven. You're not going to die. Let's stay there for a minute. You're forgiven. You're not going to die. See, David is repenting to God. He, Listen, I did this wrong. He comes back to God, and the first words out of Nathan's mouth are you're forgiven. Right? We need to understand that, that forgiveness is already given. See, the gospel is that, that God created us to reflect us to the world, to reflect him to the world, right? And that we've all failed that, and that we've all walked away from that. We've all chosen not to be God's children. But in Christ... Jesus comes and he lives a life that you and I are called to live but fail and he lives it correctly, he lives it perfectly and then he trades his life for ours. In fact, he does so by dying for us. That Jesus goes and gives his life for yours and for mine. And that in his death we get forgiveness. In his resurrection we get new life and we're called to live in a new way. But a lot of times the gospel stops there and then somehow waits for heaven for eternity to come later. And we miss that There's all this life between now and forever. But see, in that life, in that life that we live, in that life that David lived, our job is to reflect Jesus to other people, right? We reflect Christ the world because of the gospel, because of our forgiveness, because of the new life given to us, our job is to reflect Jesus to the world. So it's not just about forever, it's about right now. And David is living in the right now, and when he repents of his sin, what happens is Nathan tells him, God forgives you of your sin, now let's get to the but, but there's penalty for your actions, right? Most of you know my story. I came to faith in prison. I actually came to faith in county jail on my way back to prison. And as much as I told them, listen, I came to faith. You should just let me go. They didn't believe me. Go figure, right? See, there's a, there's a choice that you choose to do things. And when you do them, then you pay the penalty for them. I was forgiven in that moment. Still had to go to prison just for the record, right? You still got to walk through the decisions you've made. Even when heaven is secure, when the gospel has satisfied forgiveness and redemption, you still walk through the decisions you've made. When we make decisions in this life, sometimes there's a negative outcome, right? If there can be a good outcome, there can be a bad outcome too. So now he says, you're forgiven, but the child you guys are carrying, that child's going to die. And I want to be sensitive to this. It's Mother's Day, right? And, and many of us have lost children, right? Have lost pregnancies, right? God tells David, this is about your sin. So this, doesn't, this isn't a one for one. If you've lost a child, you did something wrong, right? I was talking to Pastor Paul in between services. And there's this, this man who, there's disciples that see this man who is afflicted by a disease. And they ask Jesus, real, just kind of innocently like, hey, is it his sin or his parents' sin that made him that way? Jesus says, neither one, Right? Like, it's not necessarily a one-for-one, this happened, it must be something you did. It's not that. In this case, it's absolutely that because God says so ahead of time. He says, you're forgiven, but here's the penalty. There's going to be death in your home. You're going to lose this child. There's There's going to be shame in your kingdom because of you. Because you failed to represent me to the people, here's what it looks like. Verse 15, then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife boarded David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. The Lord afflicted the child. That Uriah's wife bore to David because she was that. She was Uriah's wife right then. And so God takes this child. Now, this passage goes on, and it and it tells that right after the child dies, like David picks himself up, dusts himself off, and goes on with life. It's, it's kind of an incredible turnaround. And people ask him, like, okay, so we were super worried about telling you because you were, even before the child had died, you were just, we thought we'd lost you for a minute there. And David basically says, Listen, when that child was still alive, there was a chance. And so I prayed and I fasted, but the child's gone. God's spoken. It's time for me to get up and do the next thing. And God blesses David beyond this. But I want to I park here. So forgiveness and penalty, and we'll put this on the screen. Jesus forgives and redeems, but does not eliminate all penalties for our sinful decisions. You walk through the choices you make in life, even when you're forgiven. We walk through the choices that we make in life even when God forgives us. Yes, eternity is secure. In Christ, you have heaven. That's a, that's a guarantee. That's, that's something you can't lose. But you can make decisions that will affect you, that will harm you. And you might have to walk through those. Yes, sometimes God takes away those things. Yes, God redeems and heals and restores. Right? My story is that story. God has done far more than I ever deserve. But there's also the reality of walking through decisions we make, and that we're responsible for the choices we make and the sins we commit. Even when Jesus forgives us, we still have to walk through those repercussions. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that that these repercussions, that these penalties can only last so long. You have secured forever. You've secured eternity. You've fixed the problem permanently even when we have to walk through and struggle with it here. Sometimes you allow us to walk through the problems to really allow us to learn a lesson. Again, it's Mother's Day. We think of parenting. Sometimes walking through the outcome of a bad decision is the best way to learn from it. David will learn from this moment on. He will also be changed by repentance. Just as he was changed by sin, he will be changed by repentance, forgiveness, redemption. But in this moment, it is important for us to pause and to reflect that we walk through the decisions we make, whether we make them unknowingly or fully aware. When we choose to go the wrong way, sometimes the penalty is the way back. Help us as we learn this lesson inside our lives. We do so many things knowing they're wrong. We do,